This episode of the Australia in the World podcast is produced with the support of the Australian Institute of International Affairs, an independent, non-profit organisation promoting interest in and understanding of international affairs in Australia by providing a forum for discussion and debate. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers themselves and not the institutional views of the AWIA. Hello and welcome back to the Australia in the World podcast. I am Darren Lim from the School of Politics and International Relations at the Australian National University. And with me is Alan Gingell, National President of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. Hello again, Alan. Good to be with you, Darren. Good to be with you. Now, today we have one major focus, Brexit. We haven't given this incredibly interesting story much attention since we launched the podcast last year. And we did earmark this week supposedly the first week in a post-Brexit world as the optimal time to record. It turns out that we still have no idea what's going to happen, but the show must go on, and so we're going to tackle it as best we can this week. We'll also finish with a brief chat about Australia-China relations in light of the government's announcement of new funding for bilateral ties. So, let's get started. So, on Brexit, Alan, before we get to the actual decision itself, can I lead off with a broader contextual question. You have seen the evolution of the European Union over the course of your entire career, including key dates such as the signing of the Maastricht Treaty in 1992, which created the European Union, and the creation of the euro currency in the late 1990s. In 1950, the UK exported as much to Australia as it did to Europe, which is a remarkable fact, I think. So, How would you describe the EU through the lens of Australian foreign policy? Well, I think the angle of view through which we've looked at it uh, has consistently been through London. Immediately after the war, of course, we welcomed the establishment of the common market and the uh, contribution it made to resolving conflict in Western Europe and strengthening, more importantly, the economies of the West in the face of what was then seen as the um, dire Cold War threat from the Soviet Union. Then from around the time of the Suez Crisis in 1956, however, and that's when Britain and France tried unsuccessfully and in the face of opposition from the United States to force the Egyptian leader Nasser to back away from nationalisation of the Suez Canal, it was clear from that period onward that Britain had been profoundly weakened by the war and that its economic future lay inevitably in Europe. So it first tried to join the common market in the early 1960s, but was vetoed by Charles de Gaulle. So from that point onwards, uh, Australia began to see Europe more as a glamorous seductress trying to entice Britain away from the true path of empire and imperial preferences for Australia. (laughs) Okay. You, you, You talked about trade in 1950. By 1960, 26%, so a quarter of Australia's total uh, exports went to Britain, and 70% of those exports were agriculture. Uh, Harold Holt, who was the treasurer, told Robert Menzies, the prime minister, that Britain's proposed entry to Europe was, and I'm quoting him, the greatest peacetime threat Australia has had to face in the life of our federation. So this was a big deal. And it was a big deal in part because Britain in those days was not foreign. I've been around, as you (laughs) generously pointed out, for quite a while. And and when I joined the Department of External Affairs, the department wasn't responsible for relations with the UK. Those were handled 
in the Prime Minister's Department on the grounds that Britain wasn't foreign. It wasn't external. That all changed, I think, in about 1970. But in fact, despite our apprehension, we got through that period fine, thanks to the opening up of the markets of Japan and later the other North Asian economies. And once Britain finally got into the European community in 1973, and particularly after the establishment of the single market in 1987, the Australian focus uh, changed to concern over the impact on our own direct trade, but particularly on the broader on broader global markets of the agricultural export subsidies provided uh, to European farmers through the common agriculture policy. I can still remember Paul Keating giving uh, French journalists a lashing during a visit in the early 1990s about the perfidies of these subsidies. So, look, of course, there was much more to our relationship with Europe uh, than this, and it remains with um, the US and China, one of the three great economic superpowers. But it's still true that the news we read about Europe and the perspective we bring to bear on it are largely channeled through London. But you're you're the scholar, Darren. Let me turn this question back on to you. What What's your academic perspective on the function of the European Union? Yes, well, when thinking about the European Union, one can actually sort of return to the basic point or the founding premise of international relations, and it exists as a discipline or it was founded as a discipline for the purpose of trying to learn about war and to try to end war. You know, scholars for centuries have recognised that it's the greatest threat to humanity and so they've been writing and thinking about how wars occur uh, and, and how to prevent them. And so, you know, in the modern sort of discipline of international relations, war is seen as a failure by states to cooperate with each other. It's a cooperation failure. And, you know, there are many other cooperation failures sort of created by the fact that states live in an interdependent world and need to work together to solve problems, uh, but often those problems can create tensions which can lead to conflict. And so the question then becomes, well, how do we encourage cooperation? And through that, how can we try to solve the problem of war? And one of the major mechanisms to do that is the building of international institutions, both international organisations like the United Nations and also international law. And the logic here is that international institutions can provide mechanisms for countries to communicate with each other, to negotiate and to make commitments. And that this not only can then help solve the problem of war, but also found things like international trade and also uh, cooperate on numerous transnational challenges. But there is a trade-off here. If a country, a nation-state, is making a commitment through an international institution, that requires it giving up some of its sovereign independence. So if you are going to agree to cooperate and align your behaviour with another nation-state, you're both agreeing in some way to limit your own freedom of action. And the European Union is the extreme form of this kind of commitment because its member states have given up a remarkable amount of their sovereignty you know, not only are they agreeing to trade with very low barriers or zero trade barriers, but they're also giving up control of many other laws, you know, over regulating health and safety and all sorts of other issues of daily life that have been effectively outsourced from the nation state to this larger institution. And the benefits of doing this are massive because you are lowering barriers to trade and interaction, and you're also building a common community 
which increasingly sees it as being unthinkable that you know one would fight that they could fight with each other. But while these benefits are, all, are massive, the costs are also great. As I said, in terms of constraining sovereignty, constraining independence, and there lies the problem. But you know, in my view, you know, to the extent that the EU, who had its foundings in the aftermath of World War II with the coal and steel community, to the extent that the EU, the political project of the EU, has prevented another continent-wide war, and we all know that Europe was the site of all major conflicts for, for centuries, so to the extent that we haven't gone down that path again, and the idea that, for example, France and Germany uh, could ever fight again is almost unthinkable now, is to my mind one of the greatest political achievements in human history. So, yes, the EU... You know, does constrain nation states, and that can be can feel limiting and constraining. But it also has you know achieved this remarkable feat of really bringing the continent away from any kind of war. So anyway, that's the academic perspective. Let's move now on to Brexit itself and the factors that created it. Now, the UK has always had a more complicated and at times reluctant relationship with the EU. After joining the European Economic Community in 1973. The country held a referendum in 1975 on whether it should leave. Now, then, 67% of voters opted to remain. The Labor Party actually ran on a leave platform in the 1983 election and lost mightily to Margaret Thatcher. But even as the winner of that election, she talked tough on the EU during her time in office and successfully reduced the UK's payments into the EU's budget. And in the 1990s, the UK, of course, elected to stay out of the Eurozone currency and is also not part of the Schengen travel area. So that brings us to this decade. And in 2013, as many of our listeners will remember, Prime Minister David Cameron promised to hold a referendum on EU membership if his Conservative Party won re-election. Cameron's argument was that the EU issue had been overshadowing British politics for decades and needed to be resolved. But if we look at the political landscape, at the time, Cameron was facing significant pressure, both from right-wing Eurosceptics from within, inside his Conservative Party, but also from outside, from the far-right UK Independence Party, UKIP, which was attracting voters to its hardline, anti-immigrant, anti-European populist message. So Cameron's political calculation was probably that a pro-EU referendum result a vote to remain would alleviate that political pressure. So, Alan, you know, how do you interpret the decision to call the referendum? You know, was was this a decision that was specific to David Cameron himself and a unique set of historical circumstances, or do you read it as an unavoidable result of British political forces and an innate hostility to the EU? I don't think there was anything unavoidable uh, about it. What we're seeing is the result of a huge strategic failure by David Cameron in the way he went about uh, proposing and formulating the referendum, followed by a huge tactical failure by Theresa May in the way she tried to implement the results of the referendum. The consequence has been the greatest political upheaval in Britain in my lifetime, who now can look at the Westminster model of democratic uh, politics. I mean, the mother of parliaments is looking is looking very dysfunctional at the moment. Uh, I, re I really like the comment by the French Minister for European Affairs, Natalie Loiseau, who said uh, recently that she'd she'd named her cat Brexit because it meows loudly to be let out each morning and then refuses to go outside when she opens the door. <laughs> well, 
That's interesting you say that about Westminster politics or the Westminster model, Alan. I mean, is the flaw, if there is one in the Westminster model, that it allows for people like David Cameron to make tactical errors um, without a mechanisms, mechanism of self-correction? Like, what's, what's the underlying flaw here? I don't think the floor is in the Westminster model. I think the floor is in the um, people occupying that model. Now, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a practitioner, so I'm a human agency guy compared with you. But I don't, as I said before, I don't think it was beyond the wit of a accomplished political leader to arrange to give people the say that they wanted and that he had promised, in a way that didn't deliver this uh, sort of bald in-out result. I mean, I always think uh, on this of how much more effectively John Howard handled the question of a referendum, which he knew the answer he wanted to, on the Republic here. You know, it's possible to do it. It just needs more canniness than Cameron demonstrated. Mm. Well, let's touch upon the substantive arguments in favour of Brexit. I think one of the major thrusts of the Leave case relates to sovereignty and reclaiming control, reclaiming control over British laws from the European Court of Justice, reclaiming control over Britain's borders at a time when the Syrian migrant crisis in particular was a cause for real anxiety. Also reclaiming control over British trade policy and the ability to negotiate free trade deals with the rest of the world and indeed, to some extent, over British finances, given how much, how many billions of pounds were being paid into the EU budget, and so on. But we can also think about the question of control from a slightly different angle, that being ordinary people, ordinary British voters, reclaiming control from Europhile elites who took the UK deeper and deeper into the European Union and who have been benefiting handsomely at the expense of the ordinary person. And so through this lens, the Brexit debate is just a manifestation of the struggles that societies across the world are having with globalisation and perhaps even with modernity itself. You know, we have previously touched upon these issues on the podcast, including in our pilot episode on the rules-based international order. And I think it's, it's worth raising them again. The 21st century is, is a time when many people do not feel like they have control, that their lives are not where they want them to be and that they have no ability to change that. And there are multiple forces behind this, right? The rising inequality, deeping, deepening competition between the developed and developing worlds, advancing technology, displacing workers, migration pressures, the list goes on. And then you combine that, of course, with increasing isolation within geographic communities, but a hardening of cleavages and echo chambers within online communities. So through this lens, Brexit is a protest vote. People are saying that they do not feel that the benefits of the EU and integration are flowing to them, but the costs most certainly are. Now, they might falsely believe that the costs of leaving will be small, or they might just feel that in such difficult circumstances already, the additional costs really aren't that big of a deal, especially if those costs are going to fall mostly on the elites and the institutions they say they see as having abandoned them. So we've got sort of the substantive arguments about regaining control and we've got the idea of a, of a protest vote. Alan, how do you assess these various arguments and concerns? Well, I, I certainly agree that taking back control was one of the most powerful arguments for Brexit, but I just don't think that the outcome will deliver 
what people hoped it would. Uh, I mean, you, you talked about paying billions to the EU budget, but Britain's net contribution to the EU is just 1.1% mm. of total public public spending. So this is not going to be transformational. Um, uh, in a world uh, in which Britain sends 47% of its uh, exports of goods to the EU, it's going to continue to be deeply influenced by European standards, no matter what it does. I mean, because it wants to get into that market, it's going to adjust to that market, but it's not going to have any control over the uh, standards. And whatever impact Brexit has on the UK's ability to manage migration, and it will, uh, it's going to have less control on the global issues like uh, like climate change by being out of the uh, union. Now, I don't, I don't want to be put in a position of saying that the EU was a perfect organisation and certainly uh, concerns about the, uh, you know, so-called democratic def deficit um, uh, in uh, Brussels go back for decades. But as you noted, really, the concerns we heard during the Brexit campaign were as much concerns about the nature of the modern world as the nature of the Brussels bureaucracy and Brexit is not going to change the nature of the modern world. And isn't that exactly the danger, I suppose? What you labelled then concerns about the nature of the modern world are then ascribed to or blamed on international institutions. I mean, isn't that how we get an unravelling of the global order? No, it's not. It's it, it's how we get a challenge to the global order, but how we get an unravelling of the global order is by having people like David Cameron have wacky ideas about the, the form of referenda on these complicated issues. Okay, well, let's turn to the negotiations. Now, we don't have time to recap what's been a very complex two years plus, um, but let me quickly say the following. So after triggering Article 50 uh, in March 2017, which set the two-year clock ticking for leaving the EU, Prime Minister Theresa May unexpectedly called a snap election, only to find herself weakened, returning with a minority government and relying upon the Democratic Unionist Party of Northern Ireland for her majority. The withdrawal agreement with the EU ultimately was negotiated, but then was rejected multiple times by the UK Parliament. I think we're at three times and running as we record this on Wednesday, the 3rd of April. The problem is that there hasn't been a majority within the House of Commons for any path forward. A huge majority rejected a no-deal Brexit, but that was only a symbolic vote because, of course, no-deal is the default position if the Parliament can't agree on a deal. But equally, no majorities have so far been secured for any of these alternatives, such as a customs union, membership of the common market, or another referendum, which people have called the people's vote. The EU has already granted one extension until the 11th of April, which is Friday of next week, with another deadline coming in late May, which essentially coincides with the need to hold EU parliamentary elections. Theresa May is determined to deliver Brexit in some form. And uh, while the EU has insisted that no further changes to the withdrawal agreement will be considered and warned that further extensions are conditional upon the UK agreeing on what its path forward will be. So it's you know, very much possible that the UK could exit in a no deal you know, in a week's time, or it seems equally possible that an extension lasting perhaps years 
could be granted. <laughs> At this stage, nobody knows. So, Alan, it's, it's un, it's, I don't know how to ask this, you know, what exactly to ask, but I suppose we've both been following you know, over the past few months and the past few years this Brexit drama. What have you learned uh, from these past two years? We talked about some of this, Darren. Um, first, Neville, a refer- referendum on a complex issue without thinking very clearly about the process mm. you're following and the questions you're asking. Representative democracy was introduced because the world of the 19th century was thought to be too complicated for ordinary citizens to master all the arguments. And so elected members of parliament were there to act as agents for the voters. But in this 21st century world, much more complex, we seem to be abandoning the idea of representative democracy in in favour of the thumbs up and uh, down or swipes uh, (laughs) right or left of social social media. But I mean, this is this is something that you've talked and written about yourself, uh, Darren, where do you come out on it? I just can't get past the number of things that had to go wrong. I mean, you ascribe you know, a lot of blame, rightly so, to the strategic errors of David Cameron and Theresa May. But it wasn't just their choices that got us. Well, tacti- tactical, tactical tactical errors, errors of May. Yes, yes. Um, but I don't think it was just their decisions that got us here. You know, you have the decision to opt for a referendum because of these political forces on the conservative side of politics. But equally, you have a populist political moment around the world. You know, with the election of of, of Trump as the other major example. But there are examples in many countries across the world. You have possible outside interference in the referendum by Russia, but also perhaps from from conservative elements um, in other parts of the world. You have a far left uh, leader of the Labor Party, Jeremy Corbyn, who I think it's fair to say has quite strong sympathies with the Leave campaign. If we had a more mainstream Labor leader, such as Ed Miliband, perhaps we wouldn't be in the situation because he or she would have united a, a, a Remain coalition or perhaps you know, pushed for a much softer Brexit alternative. You have the Northern Ireland issue, which we'll turn to, or I'll ask you about more in a moment, Alan, but the backstop issue, which is also proving quite decisive. And, you know, you have, you know, the very election of Trump himself and that what effect that may have had or the forces behind it, um, you know, on the negotiations, because obviously Trump was elected after Brexit. And so I was watching a BBC documentary a few days ago where the BBC's political editor, uh, Laura Kusenberg, says, quote, this time our political system doesn't have the answers to the period that we are living through. And I think that's a really profound quote, that there are so many different forces that are buffeting you know, this Westminster model, and it just doesn't have the answers. And that may be because it's delegated that authority back to the people and they are unable to decide. But I just wonder whether the complexities of the 21st century, whether the empowerment of individuals through social media and their engagement with democracy is creating pressures on the democratic system, which occasionally are too much to handle. I'm not suggesting necessarily that the political system is about to break, but you know we've we've seen moments in history before, I suppose, where newly empowered masses, you know, the, giving the vote, um, you know, to 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 labor to workers, um, for example, empowered unions, which then saw massive changes in the structure of British politics in the 19th century into the early 20th century, where there have been massive upheavals that were caused by you know fundamental social changes in the in the structure of society, which then had political consequences. And I wonder whether we're on the cusp of something 
like that as well. I mean, when you look at the the Democratic campaign in the primary in the in the United States, where you have people like Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren making quite radical arguments for overhauls of the U.S. political and economic system, you know, I do wonder, you know, whether or not these pressures are building to such an extent that we are going to see wholesale change. Um, you know, we don't know yet. But we're, it really is a remarkable moment that we haven't seen for you know probably up to a century. Well, we're about to have a test of that here in the next uh, in the next couple of weeks. So we'll be able to come back to this during the course of yes, the Australian yes, election yes. campaign. But I wanted to actually touch on this issue of Northern Ireland because it's not one that I know a lot about. As I understand it, uh, a return to a hard border between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland in the south. Um, seems quite likely in any Brexit scenario where the UK is outside the customs union. And, of course, a hard border means checks um, on you know all goods and people crossing between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland, and that that could reignite you know, the decades-long tensions that culminated in the 1998 Good Friday Agreement, which brought peace you know, to the, the entire Ireland. Of Ireland, Ireland of Ireland. Um, again, you said before you've been around, you've seen um, this issue unfold over decades. Can you explain a bit more why this is such a sensitive issue? Well, look, you began the, the podcast by talking about the problem of war and uh, and the you know the way in which the EU itself or the EEC at first contributed to stabilising mm. the, the continent. Well, like the EU itself, uh, Ireland's been a really good example of the way economic integration can help ease deeply entrenched historical, political, and in this case, uh, religious differences by simply putting them in a, in a broader framework. Uh, freedom of movement and goods across the border has diminished the sense of differentness in the uh, North. And the problem is that with Britain out of Europe, uh, hard border inevitably descends across uh, Ireland with you know border posts. And all the other reminders of the time of troubles in in Ireland. Now, Theresa May um, uh, tried to put that off by keeping the UK within the customs union temporarily, but this alienated both the hard Brexiteers who thought that it might sort of endlessly extend the UK's dependence on the EU, as well as the uh, Northern Ireland uh, Protestant Party, on whose support she depends uh, uh, for her majority in in mm. uh, Parliament, because they feared that it could eventually put Northern Ireland in a different category from the rest of the UK, because the you know the border would appear in the Irish Sea, and that was anathema anathema to them. I guess it's just quite remarkable how this one very precise but deeply entrenched issue can overshadow the entire question and in some ways is a microcosm for the entire you know, EU question um, and mm, I, yeah. I don't know what the way out is but uh, and it doesn't seem to me in reading all the proposals you know with different sort of solutions that rely on technology to somehow identify what's moving across the border it doesn't seem to me to be realistic let's uh, turn finally to an Australian perspective on Brexit itself and you know, I know that Trade Minister Simon Birmingham said that perhaps the, the major direct issue for Australia is market access. And I guess this echoes back to what Harold Holt was saying to, to Robert Menzies in the early 60s, because you know, it's possible that Australia could benefit from Brexit if it results in, in us receiving lower tariffs or inc increased quotas 
for Australian goods in either of the two markets or across the two markets. But of course, it could go the opposite direction um, and restrict Australian access. So it could be very harmful for Australia too. But if we put aside the trade issue, I'm interested, you know, I guess if you could flesh out your thoughts, Alan, on the broader political relationship with the UK in the 21st century. I mean, the Queen is still our head of state. The Ashes is still our most important cricket event outside the World Cup, at least. And the UK is home to thousands of Australian expats, just as there are many Australians who have British heritage and British passports. So what does Brexit mean for Australia um, and how much should we care about it? Well, we should care about it a, a, a great deal. It'll be clear from my answers so far that um, I think that Brexit simultaneously weakens the United Kingdom, the EU and the transatlantic mm. relationship. So that's you know tri- quite a trifecta. The world which suits Australia best is badly damaged by it. Uh, the idea that we're about to see a return to global Britain is a post-imperial fantasy. Look, at no time during my life working in these areas did I ever see membership of the EU constraining Britain from doing what it wanted and what it needed to do in the world. Never. I mean, I just simply can't can't rem- can't remember it. In fact, the EU strengthened its hand by providing it with leverage and with allies, it's now going to be economically weaker and its liberal voice is going to be missing from the councils of uh, Brussels. Uh, now, one consequence is that Australia won't be able to use Britain to help us understand mm. Europe and sometimes to make our case there. We're going to be much more on our own. We're going to have to deal with Europe on its own terms. Now, I don't, I don't actually think that's a bad thing, but it's, it's going to require a change in the sort of manner and nature of Australian diplomacy. Uh, but I don't look. You you said uh, leaving trade aside. I don't want to leave trade aside entirely. It's important to remember that our total trade with the UK, Australia's total trade with the UK, is only slightly more than our education services alone to China. So the trade opportunities are simply not going to matter all that much for either us or the UK. You know, m- m- you know, marginal benefits mm. perhaps, but nothing more than that. And it's interesting that you mentioned how we won't be able to use Britain as our to help us understand Europe. And I guess that's also true for the United States. I imagine that the UK was the major entry point for how the US dealt with the EU. And it's really going to be marginalised because the the you know, Washington's going to need to find another partner um, with whom it can sort of work with. Whether that's I don't know who that would be the Netherlands maybe or, or, or Germany I don't I don't know but um, that would just sort of sideline the UK even more. Anyway, let's wrap up Brexit and move on um, to a, just a second quick story uh, for today. At the end of March last week, the Morrison government made two significant China-related announcements. The first was to upgrade the 40-year-old Australia-China Council, creating a new foundation infused with $44 million over five years in funding to help build bilateral ties. Alan, what was the Australia-China Council? Uh, What was its relationship to the government and to DFAT? Can you characterise its role more generally in Australian diplomacy? Like, What is it an example of? 
Australia's relations with any of our important partners go well beyond the the formalities of official dealings, and and governments often want to encourage. Uh, cultural, sporting, and people-to-people links, and this is particularly true in uh, sort of con- countries like Japan and China and uh, India, uh, Ind- Indonesia, where there aren't the sort of traditional links like the Ashes you were talking about that we've got with the uh, UK. I think you can see how important uh, the example I always use of this uh, is in the Australia-Japan relationship. And the way that's changed from deep public hostility in the years after the Second World War to the point where Australians now feel more warmly towards Japan than any other country in Asia. And that's, you know, a lot of that has to do with people-to-people links that have been encouraged. So the Australia-China Council was an example of that. It was um, set up in 1978 and it's done a lot of uh, really good work promoting our education and art and uh, cultural exchanges, including encouraging and supporting Australian studies in China. Okay, well, if we then turn to the new foundation which will be called the national foundation for australia china relations and if i I can quote uh, the press release from the foreign minister and she said it would quote harness efforts of the private sector peak bodies ngos cultural organizations state and federal agencies and the chinese australian community to turbocharge our national effort in engaging china alan can you you know, interpret this statement for us in this decision. Like what, how are we turbocharging? If we're already doing these things, what more will this new foundation be able to do for us? Government press releases seem to be turbocharging <laughs> things all over the all over the time at the moment. Seems to be the uh, word of the uh, year for uh, for press I releases guess from if government. If you don't want to change direction, all you can really do is go faster or slower. So turbocharging, yes, exactly. Yeah, turbocharging. Yeah, well, it is. It is obviously an effort by the government to give a boost to the relationship at a difficult time. And it's also noticeable that it's been um, announced at the same time as a new ambassador. Mm, mm. This is going to be a larger organisation than the Australia-China Council. It's going to have uh, more money and a broader remit. Warwick Smith, who's currently the head of the Australia-China Council and who's a former coalition minister as well as a business leader, is going to take over the new national foundation. Success, as we know, has many fathers, but for all those out there who wonder whether people outside the government system can ever have an effect on policy, I I do know that the idea was first raised in a book called China Matters, Getting It Right for Australia, that was written in 2017 by Lindy Jakobsen and uh, Bates Gill, who are both well-known China specialists. So, you know, good ideas make their way to the uh, top. At the same time, the government, as you mentioned, Alan, also announced a new ambassador to China, Graham Fletcher, a career diplomat with the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. Fletcher has significant experience in China, having been posted there three times. But he was also the deputy head of mission in Washington, D.C. So, Alan, this strikes me as, I think, the most difficult job in the whole of DFAT, ambassador to China. Can you talk a little bit about the particular challenges that would face an Australian head of mission in Beijing? Well, I think you're right. If you multiply importance by difficulty... It's certainly, I think, the hardest job in the Australian diplomatic service, and only uh, Jakarta would come close. You're managing a huge post in which almost every Australian 
government agency is represented. So it's a big, you know, just administrative uh, job. Uh, secondly, you're providing complex policy advice uh, to the, you know, prime minister and senior ministers on how to deal with this relationship. This being China, you're putting out endless brush fires. You're meeting with very senior business people, many of whom have problems because uh, and because of the nature of the Chinese system, those problems require advice or intervention at the political level. And in normal circumstances anyway, uh, you're dealing with a constant stream of ministerial visitors, although these have dried up recently and that's a, a problem in its own right. Anyway, there's no one in our system, I think, who knows... Um, uh, China better than uh, than Graham, and who knows precisely what he's in for. So I think it's it's very good news. Okay, well let's then turn to our final segment of the podcast: reading, listening, and watching. Alan, what are you reading, listening, or watching at the moment? Well, given the main subject of our discussion this week, there's only one possible answer, and that is that I've been watching uh, Brexit: The Uncivil War which is a movie uh, from the BBC, which has appeared on uh, several video platforms in Australia at the uh, at the moment. I don't know if you've yet seen it, Darren, but you'll, you'll really enjoy it when you do. Um, it's written by the prolific 35-year-old uh, playwright James Graham, who's already chronicled um, British politics and society in several uh, hit plays. And the interesting thing about it from my point of view is that it focused on the Leave campaign and its uh, very intense campaign director, Dominic Cummings, who successfully took on the combined forces of the British political establishment, including both major parties. Um, it, it was Cummings himself, and this comes through in the film, who was responsible for the inspired Take Back Control slogan and for somehow uh, managing to turn the campaign into one of support for funding the NHS. Uh, and um, Benedict Cumberbatch uh, does a really brilliant job uh, with the part. It's funny and it's uh, revealing and horrifying simultaneously. Uh, Boris Johnson, Michael Gove and Nigel Farage appear in possibly unfair but richly deserved caricatures. Um, and as, as it makes clear, the lessons uh, it offers relate not just to what is happening in, in the UK, but <clears throat> to your own concerns, Darren, about uh, politics generally at the time of at this time of disruption and social media. And several characters from the uh, from the Trump campaign include including uh, Robert Mercer, the data analytic analytics billionaire. Uh, also make an appearance so well worth watching indeed i haven't seen it yet the the bbc production that i watched as i, I think i mentioned in the, earlier on uh, is called uh, the brexit storm um and that's by laura kussenberg she is the political editor and so that is not actually available uh at least through legal means as i understand it um maybe it actually is on abc's iview by now um but it was posted on youtube um so i watched that um uh, last night, but that only covers the past nine months and sort of ends with the events of last week when the, you know the, the 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 deal was rejected for a second time. So it's still fascinating though, and it's it's not um, a fictional series. It's just a you know, sort of an overview of all the reporting that was done with a lot of interviews, um, which were done 
on the record, but which the cameraman is recording from sort of halfway behind a door to make it feel like it's there's sort of some secret <laughs> secret surveillance happening. It's really funny because she interviews Boris Johnson on a park bench <laughs> and the cameraman is literally standing behind a tree where you can see half a tree and half of Boris. And it, it it's a little bit absurd, but it, it does give a bit of, um, I guess, a bit of spy uh, veneer to or uh, intelligence veneer to uh, espionage veneer to the whole production. Still very interesting. Um, well, I, I my recommendation was also going to be another TV series on Netflix um, called Russian Doll. And all I will say is it is the, the, the Bill Murray movie Groundhog Day updated for the 21st century. It's only eight episodes, which are 25 minutes long, and it's thoroughly engaging. So Russian Doll on, on Netflix would be my recommendation for something to watch. Okay, well, that is all for today's episode of the Australia in the World podcast. As always, I would like to thank uh, our intern, uh, Charlie Henshaw, for his research and editing support, and also Rory Stenning for composing our theme music. Talk to you again soon.